we're very grateful to be here in God's service, I know, and uh, I, I hope that we are really drawing closer to God as a church. I think we are, but we certainly need to. I think all of you are aware, but some of you don't read the news as much as I do. It's partly my job and the job of the ministry to be watchmen. There are upset conditions all over the world, perhaps more than ever, in so many different places at once, I mean. And, of course, you know that. In Europe, they're upset. They're even talking about the European Union coming apart because the immigration thing is getting worse and worse. Their budgets are getting worse and worse. Many European banks are about going bankrupt, and it's affecting the American banks. There's more and more talk about a giant financial upheaval in the next few months or less. And there are all kinds of things going on in the Middle East, as you're aware. Russia, we're indirectly fighting Russia because they're fighting us in Syria. They're fighting our proxies, and we're fighting their proxies. And obviously in the past that's led to war. So far it hasn't. But just one thing after the other is happening around the world. The Chinese keep pushing, and we keep pushing back. They're trying to take over islands in the East China Sea that are claimed by the Philippines and others, and we're trying to stop that. And, of course, the North Koreans now have the potential to develop an atomic bomb, but now they're on the road to a hydrogen bomb. And so far, all we're doing is talk. I know we don't want war, but at some time we're going to have to have a King David who will do something. And we don't have him yet. We will in a few years, as the Bible shows. But so far, it's bringing us to the verge, whereas the Wall Street Journal said this morning in the paper that Los Angeles and Denver, and obviously other cities out west, Seattle, Tacoma, Portland, Eugene, San Diego, are all in danger of this rocket carrying a hydrogen bomb, which could completely wipe out those cities from this madman in North Korea. So things are happening all over the world, one thing after the other. They're unable to control some of these plagues. The Zika plague, it says it's going to be 18 months before they can even develop a vaccine to test, let alone to have any effect. Why, we are in danger, and the scientists acknowledge that, of a pandemic. We don't know what the one will be, but the different germs and the different an antibiotics we've developed are, are obviously having to face a super germ, and we, they don't know what to do about it. So we're going to be, have to trust God sometime, whether we like to or not, or there will be no deliverance whatsoever. So we are in a very interesting society. Brethren, I want us to think about some big picture things. As I get older, I want to think about them. I do think about them more than ever. And I want to share them with you, because perhaps I'm the only one that can give you some of this information. I'm not smarter. I'm not better. I've just been here longer. So while I'm here, I'd like to share some of this with you. Where are we as a church, as a people? Where are we headed, and how can we truly get there? Years ago, as you know, the Church of God was in a kind of sense of desolation. You read about it in the second chapter of Revelation. And they were giving into the Catholic Church and letting their children even be baptized by the pagans on occasion. They were mixed up, confused, running, hiding out in the northern Italian Alps and the Swiss Alps, and they weren't heard of in the world as a whole. And they were simply regarded as weird people if they were. So the church was not able to do anything. Finally, 
the Sardis Church became so weak and so dead in the United States that most people never heard of them. Their world headquarters was up in Sanbury, Missouri, just a couple hundred miles north of where I lived in Joplin, Missouri. And yet I never, ever heard of them. I probably never would have heard of them unless I went all the way 2,000 miles west to, to Pasadena, California. Then I heard of them because Mr. Armstrong knew about them. But otherwise, they weren't doing any work. They were spiritually dead. And God raised up a man named Herbert W. Armstrong to get the work really going. And it took a lot of faith and courage. If you read the early chapters of his autobiography, you can see that. He went through trial after trial after trial, physical trials, emotional trials, spiritual battles of all sort. He needed a lot of faith and courage to do that. And I know that that is true because I've talked to him, I've honestly, thousands of hours. But up in Oregon, I worked in the woods and met some Church of God people. In fact, worked for them in the summer of 1948. And then I did some more later in 1950. And I was able to talk to some of the oldest members of the Church of God, Mrs. Uh, now I'm going to, my mind's going to go blank now. But anyway, different ones that were up there in the very beginning of the church. And they remembered some of these things that Mr. Armstrong talks about in his autobiography. I still had the chance or the attitude of wanting to check up on him. And they acknowledged they weren't working for the church. They had no reason to lie. They weren't on salary. They weren't Mr. Armstrong's best buddy. But they said, yes, Herbert and Loma suffered. They had to go without. They often borrowed food or had to have food help. Mr. Armstrong had to wear a pasteboard in his, in his shoes to keep his feet from bedding wet. He didn't have the money to get the shoes half-soled or half-heeled. He had to borrow overcoats or fasteners over together at one time with a safety pin. They said, we knew Mr. Armstrong was a proud man. He'd been in business. He was not used to that, but he had to do it. They went through that anyway, trial after trial. And Mr. Armstrong was put down by many of the Sardis ministers. They were jealous of him because he had so much more capability than most of them. And I've met most of them. It's not very hard to figure that out. And so he had to put up with this. He and his wife had to have a great deal of faith and courage during those years. And during the early years of Ambassador College, we went through a lot of trials at that point also because we often didn't get our paychecks. We'd have to beg our landlady at the last minute to give us another week in order to not get kicked out. And when we were still living in Mayfair or later, some of us, why we, uh, we, we didn't, uh, we didn't have food. We had to miss meals occasionally. Raymond and Mary Raymond and Air would bring great big, uh, canisters of wheat and fix this wheat. And that's all they had was whole wheat. And Mrs. Hay, Herman Hay's mother would bring us goat cheese and, uh, some other stuff to keep us going, heavy German brown bread. And Mrs. Elliott would bring us down some salad once in a while. She said, I know you fellas don't know how to fix salads or you don't have the money. So she had, we had a little bit of food that way. But we missed very many meals. I mean, over the few years I was there, dozens or hundreds of meals because we simply did not have the money. The college was, was doing very poorly. Mr. Armstrong had to talk about closing the college on two different occasions, or three, I think it was. The faculty kept talking about when this thing folds up, because all the faculty, every single one, except Mr. Armstrong, were unconverted people. 
so they tried to put him down and talk about closing the college. So the students that stayed there had to have a great deal of faith and courage to see the big picture. But brethren, we did have a different attitude. We had the attitude of the truth. The truth became very precious. This was the only place on earth where the Bible was really being preached. And we studied every Friday night. We had a bull session up on the third floor. We talked about the Bible. We talked about prophecy. We talked about the details of technical points of the Bible, too. And we, had, we encouraged one another. And we knew this was it. We come from different backgrounds, some from Catholic churches, Lutheran churches, as I came from the Methodist Church, Baptist, all these other churches. We had proved this was the truth. That helped us hold on. We could see the big picture. As I've told you so many times, I saw in my own eyes, so to speak, reading the newspapers and seeing what was going on, big picture things affecting hundreds of millions of people. He talks about the Berlin Wall did, uh, coming down and the Eastern European nations becoming free. They did come free, but it was 10 or 15 years after his death. He didn't maneuver to bring it about. How could he have known it? The news writers didn't know about it. The so-called news analysts, he did know it. He was used by God. And we saw things like that happening. And we saw that this man understood the Bible better than any human being. And it gave us a degree of faith and courage that we had to have during the hard times many of us were having on the early baptizing tours. While we were threatened, as I've told you, I had a gun pointed at me three to five times and had to just go ahead and talk to people anyway and not run off. I didn't try to hit the guy or fight him, as we heard in the sermonette, but I did not run ever in that way. I would argue with him, well, we're just here to talk to your wife and say, you better get. So finally we did get if we saw he was going to give in because we had to sneak around behind him and knock him down if we were going to baptize his wife. So we didn't do that. We had rocks thrown at us, different canes and, 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 and sticks hit hitting us at times. We had to carry on anyway. We had to have a certain degree of courage, physical courage, in addition to faith. And I hope, brother, that you can understand that you're going to live in, and you young people here and you young people back in Kansas City and over in London and down in Australia, you young people, your world is changing right now. But I don't think most of you understand the meaning of it. The things you're seeing on the newspapers and seeing on TV news would never, ever have happened. If When I was growing up, they would run those people right out of town if they'd done the things and talked about the stuff they're doing now. And you take it for granted. You're living in Satan's alternative universe that it's already started to take over our whole society. And most people are giving in to it. Don't let that happen to you. It takes courage in your high school. It takes courage in your outside college to stand up alone. Sometimes you may be the only one, and you'll have to have courage. And some of that courage will be based on faith, that you know God is there and he will take care of you. But you may be threatened with being kicked out. Some of you fellows may be threatened physically, even with beat, being beaten up. And you'll have to have a certain amount of courage. So I hope you can understand that and, and build the faith and the courage that you need for the troubled times ahead. Turn with me back, if you would, to uh, First Peter. Turn back with me, if you were, to First Peter. We often read this, but I certainly want to mention it here today. 
in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, and uh, notice what it says here. Verse uh, 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. No, it's not some strange thing, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So you're going to be tested. You're going to be tested very, very much. And you're going to have to have physical and mental and spiritual courage. And that comes together. Quite often faith or courage are often overlapping. But I want to explain the difference perhaps as we go along. You're going to need both. And you need to develop both as best you can to go through whatever uh, Satan can dish out to you from this society. And you young people are going to have to be the leaders tomorrow. And you're going to need his steadfastness. And you're going to need to know and know that you know that God is there. This great purpose is being worked out that no other church except the churches of God that have descended from Mr. Armstrong. Only those churches really understand what's going on. Other churches do not get it. They do not understand. They're nice people. They mean well. My parents were fine people. They did not understand, though God did not call them. So you could say these are good people. Yes, they're good people, but God has not opened their mind. They will argue and argue and argue, and they will not do what God says. And then other people will turn on them if they keep on, and God certainly other people are going to turn on us. That's the big thing. So I hope we can build that faith and courage we're going to need. Turn back, if you would, at this point to Revelation now, Revelation chapter 2. Here it's describing the time just leading up to Mr. Armstrong, and certainly including Mr. Armstrong to a degree. But in Revelation 2, it describes all the children that were messed up in back during, this, back during the uh, Thyatira era, and the other eras of the early church. And then it says in chapter 3, Revelation 3, to the angel of the church in Sardis. Here's the church Mr. Armstrong came in contact and the church I came in contact with when I worked in the woods in Oregon in 1948 and again in 1950. And I attended many, many of their services. Mr. Armstrong said, go ahead and do that. We did not have a church near there. He said, I know you fellow. He said, they won't hurt you. They might be a little worried. You might worry them a little bit, which we did. Because as I've told you before, we came in, three of us, Owen Smith and Ken Herman and I with our suits on. We had cheap suits from eight pennies. But we were dressed up and we three men, they thought Armstrong's men had come here to take over. Well, we were 19 or 21 years old. We weren't ready to take over anything. So we finally got them to realize we were just there to worship. But they were weak. They were sincere, just like my Methodist friends were, but they didn't understand a whole lot more. Frankly, they were more like a, sat- a Protestant church that kept Sunday. These things says, He that has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, to this Sardis church, the third from the last era of God's church. I know your works that you have a name. They did have the name Church of God. They did keep the Sabbath. They didn't understand the gospel of the kingdom in a general sense that Christ was coming back to this earth and the Ten Commandments. But they would not accept the holy days. 
They would not accept the spirit in man. They would not accept our national identity of being the descendants of Israel. And so they did not understand prophecy at all. Many other things. Be watchful. He says, you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Wow. Here's God saying that troll church era is dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. They're dead, but the things, a few things that remain are ready to die. What a pitiful state. And that's the way they were. When we were among them, we saw that they were nice people. But after church, they'd say, well, Joe, how's the crops doing? And they talk about their crops or their work or physical things. They did not talk about the sermon very often. Their mind was not on spiritual things. They had no understanding. I started talking to them about prophecy, and I had a blank stare. Most of them didn't even take a newspaper. They just had a country paper once a week with the local news. They didn't understand the big events that were just forward, rushing forward over in Europe, even then, with the United States of Europe starting to come together. They understood none of that. So he said, your works were not perfect. Remember, and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, he said, uh, I will come upon you as a thief. How could he slip up on them? Because they were not watching. They didn't understand prophecy. They didn't know what to watch for. And you will not know the hour I will come upon you. And he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I'll not blot his name from the book of life, he says in verse 5. So at least I won't blot out the names. They'll be there, but they may be doorkeepers, those who have been faithful, because that church era was so weak. Then he comes to a remarkable era, the era that I grew up in, that many of the older brethren grew up in. It's not the era now, but it was the era up until about the time of Mr. Armstrong's death. To the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, verse 7, These things says he who is holy, he is true, he has the key of David, and that key is right church government. David is the one who is used as a benchmark of the other kings. They said this king was good or this king was bad because he did not follow God wholeheartedly like his father David. David, David, David keeps being mentioned. The key of David is fully obeying God and following the government of God. He who opens and no one shuts and no one shuts and no one opens. He tries to spout an open door many times in the Bible. A great opportunity to preach the truth. And we have that opportunity. And we have that opportunity even more in the Philadelphia era. God opened up radio, the printing press. And finally when television came along, God gave Mr. Armstrong millions and millions of dollars to go through those open doors during the Philadelphia era. Were they better than we are spiritually? I was the superintendent of ministers for 12 years. I taught nearly all the leading ministers. I better not name them, sound bragging, but I did. They were not better spiritually. It was God's time to open the door. So we have to understand that. It's God's timing sometimes. We're in the Laodicean era, but we're trying to carry on in faith and courage to do a Philadelphia-type work. And God will reward us forever if we do that. So we do need to reach our fellow Americans. We do need to reach our fellow British and Australian and New Zealand and other peoples around the world. We need to reach out to them and help them while we can. 
And God wants us to. He tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He never tells us to stop at a certain time. Never. So he says, I've set before you an open door. You have little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. We have not denied God's name, everything Christ stands for and his authority. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, these false preachers and leaders, people who say they're Jews, they say they're spiritual Jews, and are not, but I, but lie. Indeed, I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept the command to persevere. We're persevering right on over into the Laodicean era, and even though we ourselves are partly Philadelphian, and I hope most of us are Philadelphian. I don't know your hearts, but many of us are Philadelphian, and we've got to keep that attitude of faith and courage, an absolute commitment to do the work of God. You've kept my command to persevere. What is the reward we have, brethren? What, what, is it, what do we get out of it? What do we get out of it? We get eternal life, and in this life, he said, I will keep you from the hour of trial, not some hour of trial, the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The great tribulation, which is worse than any time of trouble that's ever been, known or ever shall be, you and I, and you brethren out there around the world, and you young people, you can not only have eternal life, but when these things get worse and worse and worse, if you trust God, if you will exercise the faith and the courage to do what God says anyway, God will keep you from that hour of trial. You will have his divine protection, his divine deliverance, and that's worth a whole lot when you read about how people are going to be so awful, they'll eat their own children, people are going to be tortured, they're going to be burned, they're going to be beaten up. They're going to be shot, hanged. Everything it says and God talks about the saints being beheaded there in the book of Revelation. I remember my wife pointed that out. She says, I don't think we need to take that lightly. And now we see the Islamists over there, the ISIS people, literally cutting people's heads off. Hundreds of heads have been cut off by those people. And that type of thing is probably going to spread more across the world than we realize. Behold, I come quickly. He's coming quickly on this age of the church. And so we need to be ready for that. Hold fast that you have that no one take your crown. So don't give up. Don't let anyone take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, because you've shown yourself to be strong in a time of tribulation, in a time of torture, in a time of fear, because you have had the faith and the courage to keep on no matter what. So he said, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will, he shall go out no more. And I will write on him my new name, the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and I will write upon him my new name. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're to listen to that, and we're to learn. And we in this room should learn, and you brethren hearing me now around the world should really strive with all your heart to continue to be a Philadelphian. Don't water things down. Don't give up. Don't lose your faith and courage. Obey God through trials and tests, through tempests and storms, through upsets and persecution of every time, because God is real. God is your Father. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. 
And I've seen how things go bad. It looks bad in the work. Sometimes we've had bad leaders. Some leaders took over, as you know, and tried to destroy everything Mr. Armstrong had. And some Mr. Leaders under Mr. Armstrong to, to go behind his back and tear things to pieces. Every time God did intervene and those who were faithful to him were blessed, delivered, or came out on top as the case may be. God takes care of us. He will take care of you personally. He will not let you to be destroyed or hurt or taken away as long as you're close to him and do your part and exercise the faith and the courage which you need. Brethren, turn with me now, if you would, to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 in your Bibles. Most of you know this, but I want to be sure we review this, what it means. Near the end of his life, why Jesus said in Mark 16 and verse 14, afterward, he appeared to the eleven. After Christ had already been crucified, he appeared to the eleven apostles, except Judas, who'd fallen away. As they sat at the table, they were eating, and he rebuked them. Even after his resurrection from the dead, they lacked faith, and sometimes they lacked courage. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. They simply couldn't totally get it and understand how he was alive and these things were going to happen just like God said. And he said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Are we doing that? Is your heart in that? Are you working hard in your Bible study and your personal prayer, crying out to God? Are you giving the very best you can with what you have of your time, your talents, your resources to make the gospel possible? to preach the gospel to the whole world. Are you putting it first or are you putting it last? He tells you to give everything you can in that way, obviously. So he says, preach the gospel, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. The people who do not believe are going to be condemned or judged, as it may be translated and probably is intended here, because most of these people are not judged in the sense that, or condemned in the sense they're under eternal condemnation, because God has not called them yet. But they're certainly going to suffer a lot of trouble, because they have compromised, even most of them have heard the truth and rejected it, and God is aware of that. So he's not going to give them any blessing for turning it aside, when they could have obeyed him better than they did. So we must carry on the work that Christ began through Mr. Armstrong. We've got to ask God for understanding so we know what we're doing and why. As Mr. Robinson said, we don't want to fight the wrong battle. But boy, the battle we're in to get the message of God around the world is the most important battle in a sense, plus our own walking with God. You need understanding. You need faith. You need courage, absolute courage. And when you're all alone and the knock on the door comes or whatever it is, well, they know they may haul you off or beat you up or something, you're going to have to have both faith and even physical courage. And things like that may happen. I know they're not happening. I may not be here when they happen. But I'd like for you to be ready. Don't forget what I'm saying. I'm telling you now ahead of time. So you've got to have that attitude. 
to have the faith and the courage to carry on. We've got to carry on because Mr. Armstrong is dead. He can't carry on. We're going to carry on. And with God's help, we shall turn back to the book of Joshua and hear this young man. He wasn't young by this time probably, but he was maybe in his 50s or 60s. Joshua had to carry on after, after Moses. And God told him what to do. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the eternal spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, so he told him to carry on. And, of course, we're to do the same thing. He said in verse 6, Be strong and of good courage. Over and older, Joshua is told, to have courage. Courage. Absolute commitment to do the job so you carry on even in spite of physical danger. Direct physical danger. Be of good courage. For to this people you shall divide the inheritance of the land which I swore to give to their fathers. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all this law my, uh, which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from the right or to the left. Don't turn away, brethren. Don't turn to the right. No matter what happens, persecution it doesn't make any difference. You set your mind on God. He says in verse 9, Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and have good courage again, courage. Do, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the eternal your God is with you wherever you go. So as Joshua had to carry on after Moses, we are going to carry on after Mr. Armstrong. And he says, whoever rebels against your command, in verse 18, he told Joshua, and does not heed your words, him he should be put to death. They didn't mess around with rebels back there. And the carnal nation, of course, at that time, not a church. Only be strong and have good courage. So that word is repeated many other times later in the book. But think about it over and over. Those who carry on the work have to have courage. And we've got to have courage. And God tells us to in this example right here very, very much. Turn to Proverbs, if you would, chapter 28. Proverbs chapter 28, brethren. And here's something that you're probably familiar with. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues. If people don't know God, they're not sure there's a God. They're not sure there's a purpose. They're not sure what they ought to do. So they can't have the degree of faith and courage we can. The wicked flee. But the righteous are bold as a lion. And brethren, we've got to be bold. We've got to stand up and tell the the people of this world, lift up our voice like a trumpet and tell them their sins. We've got to do things that are not popular. It's not popular to preach the truth. You know that. We've got to have the courage and the understanding to do that. We're not trying to pick a fight. We've got to be careful. We've got to use wisdom. But we've got to have faith and we've got to have courage. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. Here, as you know, God called Ezekiel, and the things he talks about here in Ezekiel are directly for this church today. I've explained that to you many times. He said, this shall be a sign to the house of Israel there in chapter 4. All the things he said were going to happen to Jerusalem. The, the, the persecution, the drought, the famine, 
the coming captivity. This was all a sign. And it was a sign to the end time house of Israel. I may go back to the whole book again as I did a year or two or three years ago and explain it that way. So you got to get it. It's not some indirect thing. It's directly for us. So he said here in verse chapter 2, verse 1, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. He told Ezekiel. Then the Spirit entered him and he heard him and spoke up. And he said, Son of man, I'm sending you to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation. Mr. Ames and I and our work is sent to a rebellious nation. They're not happy to hear what we say. Or if we were a mainstream church, they would listen to us a hundred times more. Brethren, at some time, and I hope it's very soon, something is going to put us on the radar screen. And I think God in His mercy has not done that yet, so we have not had major persecution yet. But when we get out there and we're really known, and we're crying aloud and telling the nation their sins, that's good. But the sad part of it is persecution big time is going to come. Real persecution. They don't like it. So he said, I'm sending to rebellious house to the children of Israel that rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me this day, for they are impudent. Boy, are they impudent, these modern newscasters and these other modern psychologists and political leaders. They don't care about God. They just virtually stamp all over everything he's told them to do and try to reason around it and get away with it. They're stubborn. I'm sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, as for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse. They're not going to listen, most of them. We've been told that ahead of time. For they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. Later they will get it. They don't get it now, but they will get it later. And you, son of man, do not be afraid. We must have courage. The opposite of not being afraid is to have courage. So we're to do that and go to them whether it's popular or whether it's not popular. So we've got a job to do and we're to go to them and preach the gospel of the coming government of God on this earth and God's whole way of life which they despise, which they make fun of directly and indirectly and which they're going to stamp their feet on every chance they get until God intervenes and shakes literally shakes every mountain and every island out of its place. He will speak to them in language they will understand. That language is overwhelming force. Then they will listen. <clears throat> Let's turn now to 1 Corinthians 16, if you would, brethren. 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 16 here, if I can catch where we are. In your New Testament, Paul was told... Paul is telling the brethren here what to do. He says in verse 13, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave and strong. We are to be brave and strong. Persecution is coming, and we've got to be brave and strong and not get overwhelmed by troubles that come on us, which certainly will happen. Turn to Second Timothy now, if you would. Turn with me to Second Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says in verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up. The same word is used here like you kindle into flame a fire. Stir up the fire. Get it to burning powerfully. 
Stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. God gave the Holy Spirit to the hands of Mr. Armstrong. God has given the Holy Spirit through my hands, the hands of Dr. Winnale, Mr. Ames, many others. In this church right here, the laying on of hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. We are not to be afraid or to have courage. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But he starts out with power because you need that in order to carry on. And certainly we're to have that spirit of power and that spirit of courage. So God gives us that through his Holy Spirit. Then turn back, if you would, to the book of Judges in your Old Testament, which is also, as you know, I try to beat that into the brains of everyone who will listen. The Old Testament is not old to God. It's the mind of God. This book is God's mind in print. The Bible is God's revelation. It's the mind of God in print. And when you understand it properly and realize that the New Testament magnifies the old, the law still is carried on. The letter of the law to keep the Sabbath literally and the spirit of the law, you have to put that all together, which I hope you all understand, but we need continued sermons on that. But when you put the whole thing together, he was talking to carnal people back there. And they have to understand that part. When you understand what the Bible says about itself, you understand that. It's the mind of God in print. So back there they had the ministration of death. Now we have the ministration of the Spirit. But they do not contradict each other. One builds on the other. So here in Judges, I want you to turn back here to the book of Judges. And I'm going to begin reading here in Judges chapter uh, 4. Judges chapter 4, if I can read my own writing here, which is difficult sometimes. <laughs> As a lot of you know, I have to have, as some of you other old people have to have, a certain degree of physical courage even in getting up. And I pray every day. I'm not afraid in the sense of being terrified, but I have to ask God just before I get in this hour, Father, please don't let me fall. Because I'm wobbling, I can slip and fall and cut myself on the sharp glass and metal all around. So I have to struggle to see sometimes and to get these things straight. And I hope you can understand that handicap that we're under uh, in our old, old age. But anyway, in Judges chapter 4 and verse 1, it shows when Ehud was dead, this bad guy that had killed off another king, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he rose up another bad guy, and then he oppressed Israel for 20 years. Then chapter 4, Judges 4 and verse 4, now Deborah, here's a woman prophetess. That's unusual. God never had a woman being a pastor of a church or an evangelist, you know that. But on occasion, God will use a woman to do special things. And as Mr. Armstrong said, your wife ought to be able to wear the pants if she had to if the man dies, but she'd be willing to submit to let her husband wear the pants, and he'd better learn to wear the pants while he's alive to be the leader. But women can do tremendous things with the help of God, and God uses them. Here's a wonderful woman who had a great deal of physical and spiritual courage and faith. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidus, so she was a married woman, was judging Israel at that time. 
that wasn't ideal. You say, wasn't that ideal? Oh, the whole book of Judges says over and over, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So many things are allowed through here because the men were not doing their part and the women were not doing their part and all kinds of things were happening, but God used a woman so that men would not stand up. He used a woman to do it. And she would sit in the palm tree of Deborah and judge Israel. And she sent and called for Barak, apparently this general, this military leader, and said, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and, and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of Zebedin. Against you I'm going to deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army and his chariots, and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Well, apparently their army was much bigger and more powerful. It scared these men to death. They did not have the courage at that time because they were basically cut off from God. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me. Oh, he had to have this woman go with him, which is not God's way, but God allowed it. Then I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. It's kind of like a little boy saying, Mommy, I'll go out and downtown if you will go with me. But Barak was not a little boy. He was a grown man and a military leader. This is pitiful. Later, Barak, uh, Deborah is called, as you know, over here in chapter uh, 5, verse 7. Chapter 5, 5, verse 7. He says, Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. And she was a courageous woman. She was like a mother. And God had to use her to guide these little boys, little men who were acting like little boys and didn't have the faith and the courage to be real men. So God let them be led by a woman at that time. So Barak said, I'll go if you'll go. So she said, she had the understanding and the humility to say this, verse 8, verse 9, I mean, of chapter 4. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in your journey for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. That was an honor to a man to have a woman lead the army, and she knew that. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak, and of course it showed how they won the battle, because Deborah had that faith and courage to carry on at that time. So it was an unusual time. They needed faith and courage. Turn with me, if you would, at this point, to uh, Judges chapter 6. Chapter 7, I think. Let's see, we're in chapter 4. Turn to chapter 7 now, brethren. <laughs> Judges chapter 7, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, uh, that is Gideon, here comes Gideon, and all the people with him rose early and encamped by the well of Herod. They were going to fight the Midianites. And the Eternal said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel claim glory. He wanted them to learn to trust in God. So he said, they'll say, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid. God does not honor that. But he said, if you're fearful and afraid, if you're a little boy trembling and you're not willing to go to battle, go home. And, and so on. So he said, I'm going to test them in verse 4. So these things carried on, and then you find that they did go out, 
and God had the people brought down finally to only 300 men who were willing to have trust in God. And then the Eternal said to Gideon, verse 7, by the 300 men who lapped, who were willing to get their face right down in the water, not be afraid someone was going to get them as they got their water that way out of the river, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let the other people go every man to his place. Some of these men had more physical courage than others. So he chose the ones with that physical courage. They didn't have perfect faith in God, but faith and courage often go hand in hand, as I will explain. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hand and sent them away to the rest of Israel and every man to his tent turned back. And it happened that the Eternal said, Arise, go down against them, for I have delivered them into your hand. So Gideon went down, and of course he had these only 300 men, and God delivered this whole army. And so the men stood out around the, this enemy with trumpets at night, holding torches, and God put it in the heart of the enemy to be scared to death. And verse 21, the whole army ran and cried and fled. And when the 300 men blew the trumpet, the Eternal set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole army. He's able to do that. So God delivered them with 300 men, a small, tiny number of men compared to the enemy when you read the whole account. They're called, of course, famously Gideon's army. And I know you know we often use that. We should. Brethren, we're tiny. We're glad to be here with our 250 or 270 people in this hall. That's very nice. But most of our churches, you know, up in Canada and Australia and New Zealand, the Philippines and South Africa and elsewhere, a lot of them are only 50 or 60 people, and there are many dozens of them that are just five or ten people. They're all alone, tiny, totally outnumbered and surrounded by people around them. They stand alone. Many brethren have no one else to meet with, and you brethren out there who hear this, have faith and courage. We are the modern Gideon's army. We are not big. We are not powerful of ourselves. I've said a number of times to our men, I think I've said it here in the sermon once or twice already, this whole work is hanging by a slender thread. Mr. Armstrong is dead. Ted is dead. Herman Hay is dead. The other leaders are dead. I'm the only one left of the older original evangelists who worked with Mr. Armstrong. And now I'm 85 and a half years old, and I'm getting shaky. I can't even read my own writing very much anymore, and I'm trying to carry on the best I can. Mr. Ames will soon turn 80 years old. I'll soon turn 86. Dr. Vanell is already 73 years old. He'll soon turn 74, I think, in a couple of months. We're all getting old. And we're physically weak. We don't have very many of us. What's going to happen? We're hanging by a slender thread. What you have to understand is under the slender thread is a mighty rock. The rock of Israel. And if we're serving that great God, the Creator, He will carry on His work. We have nothing to fear. He's going to use us. He's going to guide us. He's going to empower us. And we will carry on this work till our dying day. And this work will carry on. I'm doing all my part to try to bring younger men along. As you know, I'm bringing Mr. Weston along. He's nine and a half years younger than Mr. Ames. He's fifteen and a half years younger than me. He's been dedicated 
and I've known him for about 45 years. This is someone, Mr. Armstrong chose a man he never really knew. And I know he didn't know him. I could go through the whole story. But I do know Mr. Weston because I've worked with him and talked to him, been with him hundreds of hours over the years and heard him preach many dozens of times and talked to people about him. He ran the biggest church in the United States for about 13 years before he was sent to Canada. When he was sent to Canada, it was still the biggest church, bigger than we are. And now he's had 13 years up in Canada and had the courage and the vision to reach out to India, China, and get the work going over there. And now he's over the work in England for about six months, so on. The work there is growing. So he's going to come back. But he's also getting older. He's 70 years old. So we're bringing along younger men, as you know, like Mr. Rod McNair and Wally Smith and Wyatt Seselka and many, many other younger men are coming along and we're going to bring them along. I want to bring them along. I'm not jealous of them for one single second. I'm glad they can come in and sometimes they will do a better job at certain things than some of us old guys. They don't have the same experience. They don't have the same wisdom to make decisions but they can do very good at preaching and teaching and writing and on television and the Internet. We're glad to have them. We need younger men. God may finish the work through them. Some of us may carry on. But again, you brethren, you don't have to watch as you can and will. That's fine. But remember, underneath the slender thread is a mighty rock. Jesus Christ is the rock of Israel. And he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. This work will carry on. You will see it grow. Our Internet power is going to greatly increase in the next few months. We're able to give. We've had some wonderful recent offerings. We're not about to go broke. We're not rich and increased with good. But we're very grateful God is blessing us. And we're going to begin to put more money into the Internet and grow that aspect of God. That's where the, that's where the young people are. And nearly all people under 50 years old are migrating toward the Internet. They don't even watch mainstream TV anymore. So we've got to keep the TV going. We've got to increase the Internet. We've got to increase our power through the magazines. We're going to have a, a digital magazine, which again will reach out a lot more people. Most people, the young people, don't read physical magazines, paper. They don't like that. They want it on their iPhone. They want it on their computer. So we've got to have that mindset and reach them where they are. That's what Mr. Armstrong did. When radio came along, he got right on the radio. When television came along, he got right on the television. We're doing the same thing. This work will greatly increase in power, brethren, because it is the power of Almighty God. And God will guide us. We need your prayers. We need your help. We need your support. But if we keep going and we're walking with God, and if we have faith and courage and trust in God, God will greatly enlarge our power. And pretty soon, because of the power of this work, we will be blessed. We'll say, boy, we're big. And about that time, we're going to be persecuted. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're going to be persecuted. They won't like what we're going to say. And so persecution will come. And some of us ministers may be beaten up or thrown in jail. And you need to respect that. Some of your neighbors will hate you. Some of you will have problems and so on. You've got to have faith and courage in the age that is ahead because it's not a happy time. This is, God calls it this present evil world. It's Satan's world. It is not God's world. 
So to live in this world and to cause the work to grow in this world, we certainly absolutely have to have faith and courage to finish the job. Turn now to 2 Timothy again. 2 Timothy, brethren, once again. Back in your New Testament, of course. And here is one I used a few months ago in another setting. He said in chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul wrote the young evangelist Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong. We have to have courage. Be strong in the Lord and the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men. Men who have faith and courage who will carry on no matter what. Faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship. You're going to have to go through trials and tests and tests and trials of all kinds. And you're going to have to have faith and courage. Mr. Armstrong went through more, far more of that than I've ever done and probably more than any of you. But I've told you about as early students and on the baptizing tours we went out and he didn't drive us with a whip or tell us, but we constantly lost sleep, we lost food, and some days we only had one meal. And some days we didn't have any money to have more than one meal. I remember many times we were hoping we'd have a, a meal and someone would give us some tithes and offerings at the last minute because Mr. Armstrong literally sent a letter to the Coker letter just before the uh, baptizing tour began and told the members out there we were to meet to give us some of their tithes and offerings they'd like to us and help us along. And some did. I remember at one time especially, I may have told you this, but I'll never forget it. It was, I can't remember, it's Raymond or Berkman there. One of them, I think it was Burke. But Burke and I were somewhere in Kentucky. I'm pretty sure it was Kentucky. And these older ladies we just had baptized and, and, and the river came back to their home and had laid hands on them for the Holy Spirit in their home or on the front porch. And just before we walked down the steps, I think we were walking down the steps to leave and said our goodbyes. We hadn't had any hot meal that day. We'd had our our prunes and nuts or something in the morning, and that's all we had. No lunch. We were hungry, tired. We did not have enough money for gasoline to go much further. We did not have any money for a motel that night or a place to stay. And this happened more than once, not often, but two or three times. And I wasn't praying. My mind was totally honest at that time on helping them. But we were walking down the steps, and this younger woman, probably 40 years old, told her mother, who was maybe 60 or 65, she said, Oh, Mother, remember what we were going to give the young men? And right then, tears came to my eyes. Oh, wow, God's going to take care of us. And they gave us, I can't remember what it was exactly, but I'm pretty sure it was something in the 50s, $55. You know what $55 was worth back in 1951 or two? Probably $500 today. Wow! We had enough for gas and oil and food and a motel for the next two or three nights. So we were wonderful. God blessed us at the last minute. We didn't have anything, and I hope we had enough gas to get into town or park or something. We didn't know what we were going to eat except eat some more dried prunes and figs or nuts that we had that were getting kind of stale by then. Every time at the last minute God took care of us, He will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And honestly, brethren, I've seen that little things like that again and again and again, and I'm so grateful that I went through those trials and tests. These things do help us build faith and courage. So back in Second Timothy chapter 2, 1 to 9, I think he says here, Commit these to faithful men, the truth to faithful younger men, say, who are able to carry on. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier. Soldiers have to do without. My dad fought in the First World War over in France. And sometimes they would miss meals. Sometimes they had a hard time if you're in the trenches over there. You slept in the mud sometimes. You had no private place to go to the bathroom. You were having to sleep in your old clothes. It wasn't fun. Being a soldier is not fun many, many times. You're a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Don't get all entangled in your job and your worldly friends. Don't get all entangled with the latest TV shows, the latest ball game. It's not wrong to know about those things, but your mind is better be on the purpose of God. These massive prophecies are moving forward. Once this European upset takes place, and maybe the EU will crash, they're going to have to build all over again. And they will build on a different foundation. A strong man will rise up, and a strong pope will rise up, and they will get together, and they will resurrect the Holy Roman Empire. Now, it's never been resurrected before. The most powerful force in modern times. You're going to live to see that over the next five or ten years. I don't mean 20 or 50 years. Over the next five to 15 years, let's say at the most, you're going to see those things happening around you. I can't bring it about, but that's going to affect hundreds of millions of people. Wait and see if I'm right, you younger people. Almighty God's Word is marching forward. These big things are marching forward. So we've got to have faith. Don't get yourself entangled with this world, but put your trust in God and put seek ye first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness, God says, through Jesus Christ, Matthew 6, verse 33. So we've got to really understand that. I want to give you some keys on how to develop courage and faith. First, one way to develop courage is to build your physical strength and energy. That may sound worldly, but that's part of courage. And certainly physical courage can help bolster your spiritual courage and faith. I had a lot more courage in certain physical ways when I was younger because I was strong for my size. I was athletic. I used to say if I cannot fight him, I can outrun him. I did lots of bold things that other my friends would not do at all. I better not go through a store and brag, but I did do that. Of my 25 friends that I was with all the time, if you could ask any one of those 25 guys who was the one who was most bold among you to step out and do something, in a trouble, they would know who it was. They knew that I did do that again and again and again. God used that. I've been pushy. Sometimes I've been too pushy, and I apologize. But God used that courage, and that's whatever it is, to move ahead. And even back then it was there. So God could take that and use that for a good purpose. If I use my, my pushiness and my drive... And what courage I still have left as I get older and physically tired and afraid, still to move ahead, he can use that spiritually. But if you're young and strong physically, it can help you to have more courage. You're not going to be afraid of little things as much as if you're physically weak. You women, too, keep in good health. 
If your health is good, your energy is good, you'll tend to think better, you'll tend to be more of a positive person, and that will translate it into courage. Secondly, certainly you need to develop spiritual faith. And certainly you've got to develop that faith in all the ways we've told you before by studying this book, the Bible, Feeding on Christ. As it says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Drink in of it. Think about it. Ingest it. Feed on Christ. Know this is God speaking. As you do that, as you see how it's, it's real, it works. God's way works. As you see how the prophecies really happen, you'll develop more faith. Ask God for faith then in prayer. Develop faith. Faith and courage go together. And thirdly, the way to develop courage is to exercise faith and courage. You cannot just have a muscle by thinking about it or reading a book. You learn to swim by swimming. You don't learn to swim by reading a book. You swim. You learn to speak by speaking. So I had it based on that thought. I gave lectures, of course. I gave a lot of lectures every week. But on the other hand, I got them to speaking and evaluating like we do in spokesmen because they learn to speak by speaking. You learn to have faith and courage by practicing faith and courage in your daily life all day long. Think, am I having faith? Am I showing faith? Am I watering down God's way of life when I do this or when I do that? Am I giving up on God when I watch too much television? Am I giving up on God when I drink too much liquor? Am I giving up on God or watering it down at least when I do whatever it is, when I don't really train my children or spank them when they need it? Do you lack faith and courage? Put faith and courage into action in your daily life. Walk and live by faith. Walk and live by courage in everything you think and say and do. So I was courageous to a degree as a young man. I'm sure not nearly as courageous as John McCain, who was in that terrible prison over there, suffered and was tortured. I'm not saying that. Some of those men were very courageous. And some of those men have a lot more ability than I do in probably a hundred different ways. But God has not called them yet. God has called you and me. We've got to exercise the strength we have and exercise faith and courage and build faith by exercising faith. So you have to get courage. You have to be good at boxing by boxing. You have to learn to swim by swimming. And you've got to build faith and courage by using it all day long. Turn now to Second Samuel here, and you'll see something in... Uh, I think if I can read my Bible, I mean First Samuel was turned back there. Turn with me, brethren, back to First Samuel uh, seventeen. First Samuel chapter 17, and I see my marker seems to have dropped away or whatever, but I'll get back there anyway here. And First Samuel, no, I'm still, I'm turning to Second Samuel. No wonder I, I don't see what I want to see. Most of you know where this is. This is talking about Saul and David. And in First Samuel 17, here it is. It shows how Saul was at war against the Philistines and they were winning and the army was scared to death because this great champion came out, 
Goliath, who is 12 or 14 feet tall, powerfully built. All the men of Israel were scared to death. And so David had been sent bringing his brothers some food by his fathers. And as he left his supplies, verse 22, pick it up at verse 22, he left his supplies with the hand of the keeper. He ran to the army and came to greet his brothers. And as he talked with them, there was a champion, Goliath, coming up and speaking as he did the same words about challenging Israel. Come out and fight me. They wouldn't do it. They lacked courage. They were scared to death. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man fled, for they were dreadfully afraid. These warriors were dreadfully afraid. And here's this young boy. He, the Bible pictures him like a little 10-year-old boy. No, he wasn't. He was obviously about 20 or 25 years old. But he was much younger. Might have only been 18. But he was certainly not some little boy. But he, they, though he, he said, when the Israel men of Israel did this, they, they said, have you seen this man, how powerful he is coming up to defy the armies of Israel and the king will enrich the man who fights him? And David spoke to the men. Here's this very young man. David was not a little shrimp. David by that time had been sent alone out of the fields at night, stayed all night with the sheep, killed lions and bears. No, he wasn't a 10-year-old little kid. He was probably 18 or 20 years old. But he hadn't been in an army yet. So David spoke. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine who's defied the armies of the living God? Wow. The other people were upset at that. They thought, how can this young kid speak up like that? This young boy it sure showed how lacking in faith they were. So his older brother Eliab got jealous and put him down. But if David spoke to others and the report came to Saul... Then David said to Saul, verse 2032, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go and fight against this Philistine, for you are but a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. But David said, Your servant, here's the thing, brethren, David had had several years of developing physical strength out in the wilderness by himself, and faith and courage. Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion, now they didn't have huge four or five hundred African lions, but they had wild cats and big cats nevertheless that would just tear a man's guts out real quick. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Wow. He had a, he had just a staff. He didn't have any guns. He would physically kill these animals with just a staff. Your servant has killed the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine might be like one of them, seeing he's defied the armies of the living God. He had a radiant faith. And he certainly had physical courage. He was used to fighting. He was used to using his physical strength to accomplish things that helped back up the faith. Moreover, David said, The Eternal who has delivered me from the lion and the bear, He will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul, this great big king himself, was big, probably six, five, or seven. He was bigger than any man in Israel. He said, David, go, the Lord be with you. So David took his staff and five small stones and drew near the Philistine down in this valley. 
In verse 42, when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. He kind of thought, what's this young shrimp coming out here? He saw his ready, a youth, and good-looking. So the Philistine said, Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. Probably used a lot of cuss words and cursed David by the name of some pagan God. Then David gave that probably gave David all the more faith because he knew he was serving the real God, the God of Israel. And the Philistine said, Come to me, little boy, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Did David's heart start pounding and he gave up? No. He had total faith in God. He'd used his slingshot. He'd used his staff to kill wild animals out in the field again and again for years, probably. He said, You come to me with a sword and a spear, and I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You defied him. You're not just defying me. He put the thing in proper context. This day, the ever-living one will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head off you. This day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistine to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth... You see, David was thinking about the big picture. I'm going to do this that all the earth may know that there is a God... And we would need to say today, a real God. They have all kinds of false gods today. That there is a real God in Israel. And brethren, we've got to so live and so do this work that the world will begin to know there is a real God in the church of God. We've got to be Gideon's army. We've got to be like David. We've got to have faith and courage. We've got to keep on and not give up and quit. Never be afraid. Because God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So I hope we can really get that and fully understand that. Turn back to Second Timothy one more time. I'm going to that particular chapter a lot, but this is a different part of it. It's all very important. Second Timothy. And this time, brethren, turn to chapter 4 with me. Second Timothy chapter 4. Here's the end of Paul's life. Paul's been beaten up. He'd been left in the pool of blood outside Lystra, left for dead after they'd stoned him. He'd been whipped over and over by the Jews and the Gentiles. Sometimes the Gentiles would keep whipping them past 40 lashes until their body was torn up and bleeding all over. He'd gone through those things again and again. He said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Don't water it down. Let's do the work, brethren. God commands us to preach the word, ready in season, out of season, convince, convict, rebuke with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We've seen that. Even many in the church gave up. They've turned right back to paganism. Thousands of our brethren, hundreds of young men and women I've taught, it makes me sick. They give it up, go right back to paganism. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they heap up followers for themselves. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, go on out and preach the gospel with power, be willing to go through trials and tests, be willing to be thrown in jail, be willing to be beaten up, do it with power, do it with faith and courage, do the work of an evangelist. And fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. 
Paul didn't say that in First Timothy or back in Philippians or Colossians. He didn't, it wasn't known yet. Now God had undoubtedly spoken to Paul. He had let Paul know, your time is near. The time of your death is coming very near. Prepare, Paul. Gird up your loins. Get your affairs in order. I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. Yes, as I said a few weeks ago, we are Christian soldiers. We're in a battle. We've got to win that battle. It takes faith and courage. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He had faith and he had courage. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. Let us love his appearing. Let us do his work to the end to preach the word, to preach the true message of the coming government of God to this whole world, to every nation on earth, to help people, to build people, to strengthen people, to prepare a people for God. Let's put our being in that, brethren, and finish the work with understanding and faith and courage. And let's be sure that you let nothing, let nothing turn you aside. We've got to be the modern Gideon's army to get this work done and get this work done with power and faith and courage. So let's do it. Let's not turn aside for anything. Let's move ahead with faith and courage right on over into the kingdom of God.